This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 33rd edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today as my special guest, I have a well-known sports economist and author, Professor Andrew Zimbalis of Smith College. Today as my engineer, we have Daniel Billis, longtime Rainier Avenue Radio person. A lot of good things going on at Rainier Avenue Radio. We have a great sports department, all sorts of other shows. Professor Zimbalis, I'm going to give a little more of an introduction of you to here. Uh, professor Zimbalis has been a professor at Smith College since 1974. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in economics. He's written about 28 books and many articles. Professor Zimbalis is known as one of the best sports economists in America. Uh, he has written extensively in the business, culture, and historical aspects of, of sports. Uh, Professor Zimbalis is referred to by the great broadcaster uh, Bob Costas as a perpetual source of insight on the economics and administration of modern sports. Professor Zimbalis has been worked as a consultant in the sports industry, as an expert witness. He uh, one time hosted a show on National Public Radio. Today we're going to learn more about your work today, Professor. We're not getting to everything, but I think we'll have a fun, interesting conversation. Professor, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Good to be with you, Paul. Thank you, Professor. Professor, um, as I mentioned in your introduction, you uh, have been a professor since the 1970s, I believe, and you have a very unique specialty in the field of the economics of the sports business. How, how did you break into that unique field? I had an 11-year-old son in 1990 who was a Little League fanatic, and one night I was putting him to bed in March of 1990, uh, looking at the baseball cards that plastered every square inch of his wall. <laughs> and out, out of the blue, he said to me, Dad, I don't think I'm going to play Little League this summer. And I said, really, Jeff, how come? And he said, well, the major leaguers aren't playing, so I figured I won't be able to play either. The major leaguers were being locked out of spring training camps by the owners. And I didn't know much about Major League Baseball economics at the time, but I did know that Jeff didn't have any worries to, about whether he's going to play Little League or not. So I, I explained that to him, and I reached up to turn off his light, and he said, hey, Dad, you're an economist. You like baseball. You just finished your book on Panama. Why don't you write a book on the economics of baseball? 11-year-olds don't usually tell their fathers what to do with their careers. <laughs> so I went, I went to, came to Smith College the next morning. I wasn't teaching. I went to the the basement of the Smith College Library, and started looking up the economics of baseball. I discovered, number one, that the baseball had been granted an antitrust exemption back in 1922 by the Supreme Court, and number two, that uh, the, nobody had really written about the much about the economics of baseball. So I sat down in my office that afternoon, wrote up a three-page proposal, and I sent it to a publishing house, Basic Books, which was uh, known to be a cross between popular publishing and academic publishing, never expecting to hear from them because, after all, I had no credentials in this area. But they, uh, the, uh, the editor called me up three weeks later and said, we love your proposal. They gave me a $30,000 advance. I wrote the book. It became a business bestseller, and the rest is history. As you know, I started to get asked to, to speak and to, uh, to do media shows and to write and uh, – uh, to, to consult in the sports industry, and and so I just got swept swept up by all of the various sports. Really, I've I've consulted or written about just about the entire industry. That's a great background. Eleven year old son playing little league kind of got you propelled into a major field. This is Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Professor Andrew Zimbalis. Professor, I know you've been asked this question thousands of times. You've studied this issue of whether communities come out ahead with public funding of professional sports stadiums. Professor, are there any exceptions where public financing of a stadium or arena has been economically beneficial for a community where the evidence is pretty clear of that? I think so. Uh, you know, really what, what the 
the scholarly evidence on this basically says that if you build a stadium or an arena by itself, and if that stadium or arena is largely publicly funded, that there's no no expected increase in per capita income or employment, that's that's the uh, that's the conclusion of the scholarly literature. Um, it, it when when you vary those conditions, when you're um, building other things in addition to an arena, which is what the recent trend has been, where you build an arena, you build a stadium, but the private sector commits to, you know, building mixed-use development around the arena, the building hotels, building residential properties, condos, building retail, building commercial space. If this other stuff happens and it's privately funded, um, and this, the city is right for that kind of development, then it is possible that you financially you, you either come out whole or even with, with some improvement. Uh, so th- there's no iron law here that you know if you build a stadium, it, it can't help your city or it's necessarily going to create a deficit. Um, the, the point of the econometric studies that have been done really is to uh, generate these coefficients that are statistically significant or not statistically significant, and they're really representing an average experience and therefore what right. you can expect on average. It doesn't tell you... Uh, ineluctably, inevitably, that it's always going to be one way or another. So it's case by case overall, Professor, then? I think it's case by case, and I think it is also true that up to the year at least 2000, it was the case that uh, most, uh, vast majority of, of the cases were was not producing economic benefits, and more often than not, it was producing uh, budgetary holes in, in the city budget or in the county budget. Or in a state budget, depending on on who was who was behind financing, that was true more often than not, and it was true up till about uh, the first couple of years of of the 2000s. Since then, there have been modifications in in the way these stadiums are are planned, and in the way that they're financed. And so, it's quite possible that uh, w- with the right circumstances and 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 with a more balanced financial plan. Uh, that you can either come out whole financially or you can come out a little bit ahead. Professor, I mean, basically, basically, the story is you, you, you've got to pay attention to the details and you, you've got to be sensible and you've got to be, you have to have some wise city planners involved. Uh, and you, you need some, uh, some committed support from the private sector. Sometimes what happens is, is that you know, the owners will go to the city and say, hey, we're going to build an arena. We want you to fund it. And we expect that the arena will generate all this other investment. Uh, but having that expectation isn't sufficient. You need to have a commitment of, of the additional, the ancillary investments. Interesting analysis. Professor, speaking of stadium financing issues, in Seattle, a key arena, $700 million, all private plan, with the exception of some tax breaks for the uh, developers, was passed by the city council last month. Do, do you see all private funding solutions for arenas as, as the future? Well, it really depends. I mean, you know, private investors are looking for a positive return on their money. Uh, and and if you're going to be building um, a, a new arena that's, that's next to an existing arena, or if you're going to be building a new arena in the wrong part of town, uh, if you're going to be building a new arena and all you're going to get is minor league, minor league teams playing it, none of those things are going to re- produce a return. Um, that, that would justify the, the, the risk capital put up by, by the private investor. 
Um, however, if the circumstances are different, if if you're taking a, a key arena which is very close to downtown, uh, and you're and and you're renovating that, and you have a deal with the NHL, or you have a deal with the NBA, or have a deal with both, um, and they're going to be coming, and and you they you know. The ice capades and the circus and the rodeo and so on don't have another good arena to go to. Uh, then maybe it's maybe it's a kind of uh, investment that would pay off for a private investor. One of the things that's different about arenas than stadiums is that most arenas, at least if they're planned properly, are going to be able to be used 200 to 350 days a year. Uh, they're you know they're indoors. You don't have to worry about cold winter days. You don't have to worry sure. about rainy days. You could have things there all the time. Some days you could have uh, a daytime activity there, and you could have a nighttime activity there. In contrast, if you're building an NFL football stadium, it's going to be used ten days a year, uh, plus an occasional concert, uh, plus an, an occasional evangelist who comes. And so, what do you have? You have fifteen days, maybe twenty days out of a year uh, of three hundred and sixty-five days where it's going to be used. And if the arena, if the stadium, if the football stadium is being put somewhere in the downtown area, uh, and it's using up the stadium itself is using up ten or twelve acres of land, and then the parking lots around it uh, for tailgating are using up another twenty or thirty acres of land, uh, that's probably a pretty awful investment. It's a, it's a, it's an awful right. financial investment, and it's a, it's an awful misuse and underuse of of valuable and scarce urban real estate. So I think, again, the devil's going to be in the details. You have to look at this, this situation case by case. Well, enjoy the analysis. I, I, I like your distinctions between arenas versus stadiums. I think that's very helpful analysis. Real quickly, uh, Professor, speaking of uh, sports owners who put together stadium, publicly financed stadium projects, as you know, Paul Allen passed this week, the owner of the Seattle Seahawks and the owner of the Portland Trailblazers. He also played a role in getting uh, professional soccer the MLS to Seattle. Any thoughts, Professor, from a national sports economic standpoint on Paul Allen, the late Paul Allen as a sports owner? Well, I, I haven't followed him closely, frankly. He's, he's been an important owner, as you've said. Um, he has has been behind bringing teams to the Seattle area. I, I think that when you look at an owner's history, you, there are certain things you have to look at. You have to look at his role in the community outside of building stadiums or outside of the sports teams that don't. A successful owner is somebody who integrates his organization. And from, by that, I mean the executives in, in, in his franchise and also the players in his franchise integrates them into community affairs and do a variety of community affairs. Because a, a, a sports team, there's no sports team in any league that is, is going to win the championship every year or even have a above 500 winning percentage every year. Uh, and so what, what an owner has to do is have ties that will carry the team through lean years and will continue to have a lot of presence in the community, will continue to have community support, even though it's playing 400 ball. Um, and so I, I haven't, I, since I don't live in Seattle and I haven't studied Paul Allen, sure. um, other than from 3,000 miles away, it's hard, it's hard for me to assess that. Um, it's also... You know, the other thing you want if you're a sports fan is you want, you want a team owner who is able to hire a team president, a club president or CEO, is able to hire a GM, is able to hire other personnel, and then basically turn the operation over to them and not interfere all the time. 
Um, and so a, a, a team owner has a very essential role to play if the team is going to be successful in choosing the top executive personnel that run the team and then also allowing them to run it without interfering according to uh, the whims of, of the owner. Uh, now, I, you know, it does, it, Paul Allen hasn't had a tremendous amount of success in terms of, of bringing winning franchises. And so that, that might raise questions about his role as an owner. Uh, when, when, when there was a vote about uh, having a new stadium for the, for the Seahawks and having public financing for that, uh, he, he was able to provide an enormous amount of money for the yes campaign. The no campaign had very little money. Uh, that's it. Any, any, any owner will do that, but I think that's also part of his record. Um, anyway, I think it's very complex. Uh, from a distance, he seems like, on balance, he's been a positive source of, of sports development in the Seattle community, but I don't want to go much further than that. Well, appreciate your analysis on Paul Allen. You gave us some more insights on a, what a successful sports owner does. This is Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with noted sports economist Professor Andrew Zimbalist. Professor, I've read a couple of your books, and I've, this week I've been having some fun going over some of your books. And in your 2017 book that you co-wrote, Unwinding Madness, What Went Wrong with College Sports and How – um, how to fix, I believe, is a tile. It's a very interesting book, and you come out for something fairly radical in a way. It's almost like politicians who call to blow up the big banks. You call for the blow up and the abolishment of the NCAA. Tell us a little bit what you have in mind on that. Uh, give us a little snapshot of what you have in mind there. Well, okay, so it's it's actually quite complicated to get to get to where um, I I make proposals and what what I'm suggesting should be done. But basically, the idea is this. The NCAA functions now and has always functioned as a trade association for athletic directors, coaches, and conference commissioners. College presidents don't get involved. Uh, those college presidents who are involved at all with the NCAA are there as boosters. They're not there to reform the NCAA uh, and, and make it more compatible with, uh, with, with academics. Um, there are there are a slew of problems with college athletics having to do with uh, academic scandals, having to do with recruitment scandals, having to do with uh, physical abuse scandals, and having to do with financial deficits and massive financial deficits. I think that one of the and, and I, because I think the NCAA is controlled by the people who are involved with college sports, it's not going to reform itself. And therefore, the, the best way to reform it is for Congress to get involved. Right. I know that that's not, that's not necessarily uh, the most popular uh, view about what Congress should be doing these days, because Congress has a hard time getting out of its way uh, most, most days. Uh, but if you look back at the, co the college, excuse me, at the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, which was amended in 1998, they have essentially created a bill and created a process that uh, – that formed the United States Olympic Committee and allowed the USOC to take over from the AAU the role of organizing U.S. Olympic teams and U.S. Olympic sports. Um, so Congress created a body that would uh, direct the future of, of amateur sports way, way back in the 1970s. I think that Congress needs to have a commission that does a study and an investigation on college sports that would say to the Congress, here is the way we should structure college sports. Get rid of the NCAA, create a new college sports body, 
gives that college sports body certain antitrust protections or exemptions so that they could do things like uh, put put caps on, on coaches' salaries, put caps on the amount of money that could be spent on college sports facilities, because there is an arms a, run, a runaway arms race right now in college sports. So give them all of those abilities, but do it in exchange for required fulfillment of certain academic standards. Uh, and so we can move away from this world that we're in now where there's special admission standards for athletes, there's special tutoring programs where, where the tutors are not actually teaching, but they're writing papers for the athletes. Uh, and we have, we have a system that's fundamentally corrupt. So I think that there's an important role here for, for public policy. I don't have very much faith in, in the courts and antitrust law because I think it's a great big mess. It would take me an hour or so to go into why, right. but it hasn't it hasn't done very much now except distract people and and cost a heck of a lot of money. The the O'Bannon case, uh, which which went through the court system between '09 and 2016, ended up costing the NCAA over a hundred million dollars. Uh, and we're in another case right now, the Jenkins and Alston case, that's costing tens of millions of dollars. Ultimately, it might cost more. Uh, and so we get these every couple of years, different kinds of challenges. Uh, and the court system just is not equipped to deal with it. I don't think antitrust law itself is equipped to deal with it. Well, Professor, I wanted the listeners to to hear more about your proposals on abolishing the NCAA, and I, I appreciate your your background. Obviously, your book you go into many pages of your of the specifics, but I think it's important in this show to to get a little snapshot. Real, real quickly, uh, Professor, I want to move on to a couple other subjects. But but you, I think your 1999 book. Unpaid professionals. You, you mentioned a reform idea that I personally found very interesting. It really caught my attention. You you suggested, I don't know if you were endorsing it, but the idea of a hybrid model came up, where the NCAA can allow Division One teams to say have eighteen, to say have fifteen of its eighty five players on a football team be non matriculated students. Um, in theory, this seems to make sense. Is this hybrid level idea ever going to go anywhere? I don't think so. You know, it kind of died at my book, I think. <laughs> um, you know, one, one of the – so I, I think actually there, there are two ways out of the mess right now. One of them is what I suggested with regard to public policy a moment ago. The other way is to, to say uh, let's acknowledge the reality right now. Let's acknowledge that 90% of the football players don't have the interest and don't have the time to be students uh, or, and don't have, don't have the preparation, the pre-college preparation to be students. Um, and similar percentages for for the top level basketball players, the male basketball players, um, and and what's happening is that we're not paying them. And instead of paying them, what we end up doing is is pay the coaches the value that the players produce. So we have coaches that are getting ridiculous sums of money seven, eight, nine million dollars in base salary a year. Um, and so let, let's simply say the reality is that these students, that these players, excuse me, these players are not getting paid. Uh, but they are being exploited, and it is a commercial system. So let's stop playing this game that they're college students. Let's let's professionalize it. Yeah. Major League Baseball, the average Major League Baseball team has six or seven minor league teams. They've got they've got 150 to 175 minor leaguers. The major league team pays for those players' salaries. Right. Major league average Major League team in baseball spends over 20 million dollars a year in player development. The NBA and the NFL have pretty much gotten off scot-free. In more recent years, the NBA now has a development league or a G League, uh, so they have a little bit of expense, but it's diminutive. Um, why don't we turn 
the, the top level of college sports into minor league sports. Let it be financed by the NBA. Let it be financed by the NFL. And in fact, the NBA and NFL could have contracts. They could have a contract with the Seahawks could have a contract with the University of Washington, uh, where they would rent out the stadium, where they would uh, where, where they would pay the uh, the, the university for using the stadium, for using the, the, the logos, for using the branding of, of the team. Uh, so that would be a way of taking this hypocrisy away and this lie that the students are forced to live, that they're students as well as, as athletes. Uh, take that out of their, uh, their problem and to give them, begin to give them a salary. And it would also deal with the deficits that the colleges experience. Right. So I think that that, if, if you want to talk about a hybrid model, that's the way I would go at this point, which is to, to create, to create, uh, 30 teams, uh, or more from colleges that would play minor league football, play minor league basketball. And then the rest of the college system wouldn't be under the same pressure. You have a lot of colleges now who are always trying to emulate the other, the other teams, the more successful teams in their subdivision, or they're trying to emulate teams in a higher subdivision than they are. And because they're trying to emulate all the time, they're spending money and they're not bringing in revenue and their deficits are growing and growing. So that would be an alternative to the public policy uh, intervention that I spoke about earlier. Well, I found that proposal intriguing, that hybrid model. This is Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff. If you're just tuning in on Rainier Avenue Radio with the great sports economist Andrew Zimbalist. Real quickly, a Professor, you've written a lot about the business of baseball. Any thoughts on Commissioner Rob Manfred, the current baseball commissioner? Is he doing a good job? <laughs> well, in your Rob has quite a challenge before him, I think. You know, baseball has uh, kind of been dipping a little bit in popularity o- over the last few decades, and, and uh, attendance has been dipping a little bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, all the professional sports, baseball is one of them, have, have the problem of segmentation of the audience. There's so many entertainment options available now and so many niche sports um, and, and so many different things one can spend time on with the Internet that it's hard. It's very hard for, for anybody in any of the sports to maintain their fan base. Uh, so I think that Rob's got, got an interesting problem. Uh, he's, he seems to have settled on this idea that, you know, if you can only get the average game time down from three hours to three to two hours and 55 minutes, that, that all of a sudden there'll be a lot more interest in watching baseball. I'm not sure that, 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 uh, that, that that's the solution. Uh, I don't. I think he's probably putting too many eggs into that basket. It's not a bad idea. I'm not against reducing the game time by five or ten minutes, but I don't think that it's it's going to take him as far as he wants to go. In any event, it's a very complicated job. Rob is a very capable man. Uh, I think basically he's doing a good job, but uh, he needs to pull a few rabbits out of the hat, and, and so far he hasn't done it. Professor, can I keep you for about three more minutes? Okay. Thank you. Uh, real quickly, Professor, uh, you've written a lot about the Olympics and the World Cup. You wrote a book where you just have some strong data that the Olympics and World Cups are usually money losers for communities. And a 2016 Time Magazine article, you suggest that Los Angeles should be the permanent home of the Summer Olympics every four years. Is the International Olympic Committee ever going to go along with that and agree to have L.A. as the permanent home of the Summer Olympics? Uh, if they ever go along with it, it's not going to be sometime in the next couple of years. I can tell you that. <laughs> I was just I was just down at the, the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires, and they had a conference before the Games, and I, I, I talked about the idea of having one venue for – one permanent venue. And, you know, the, the people on the IOC, there are a hundred of them, the members of the IOC – 
really, they all feel very special. And the reason they feel special is because they, they're maintaining this myth that all the countries in the world and all the cities of the world want more than anything else to have the honor of hosting the Olympic Games and that they every four years they can uh, put out a sign saying, okay, we're going to have an auction now to see who gets to host the Games seven years from now, and there'll be lots and lots of bidders. Uh, and they get to travel around the world, and the IOC has lots of money, and so always travel business class or first class. And that's that's their culture, that's their mindset, and it's not going to be easy to break. So I think you could you can make rational arguments until you're blue in the face about <laughs> ways that, that the IOC and the Olympics and the World Cup, for that matter, could be restructured. Uh, but there are politics that get in the way, and I think there is a, a good, sensible argument for choosing uh, one city uh, for, for each for, for the summer and the winter Olympics. Los Angeles would make the most sense if it were the summer Olympics. Uh, that's not being a U.S. chauvinist because it's, I don't view it as a particular advantage to to Los Angeles. They could do it only because they wouldn't have to build very much, and so they wouldn't lose any money. Uh, the U.S. government, the federal government, would lose money because they'd have to pay for the security. And that's about a two billion dollar bill. Uh, so there are lots of lots of sensible plans for reforming the, the way the Olympics are conducted, uh, but there are political problems. And, and so I think that the the approach probably is going to be more incremental going forward. One of the things that's interesting, though, is that the IOC has had a heck of a time getting cities in recent years getting cities to bid. Um, you know, they only they only had two cities bidding for the the 2022 Winter Olympics. Five European cities had been involved. They all dropped out. Um, they right now have three cities that are still bidding for the 2026 Winter Olympics. Uh, but we, we know that Sweden's not going to stay in the bid because the city council in Stockholm said they're not interested. The, the central government in Italy has said it's not interested. And the third country that's, or city that's supposedly going to bid is Calgary. And they're having a referendum next month. Uh, and they can vote it down in a referendum. So they might end up with, with no bidders at all for the 2026 Winter Olympics. And, and that's the reason why they awarded last year the 24 Summer Olympics to Paris. At the same time, they awarded the 28 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles because they were afraid if they had another bid, another auction for 2028, they might end up with nobody coming to the party. Great uh, so insights. There, there, there is a lot of interest. There is a lot of pressure on the IOC to figure out a way to remake the model. And, and they're doing their best with public relations campaigns, uh, but it's a very incrementalist approach. Uh, I think further down the road, we'll see that they have to do things that, that are more profound. Great education Olympics. Professor, we have less than 30 seconds left. What does the future hold for Andrew Zimbalist? I'm sorry, what, what does the future hold, you said? Yeah, what does the future hold for uh, you? Well, I, I, I just, uh, I, I follow my nose, you know, and so I, I get I get asked to do different kinds of consulting uh, gigs, and if if an interesting one comes along, uh, then then I grab it. I'm involved in some consulting now, and uh, I, I don't have time to talk about it, but it's, you know, it's stuff in the sports industry, and I, I usually end up writing two or three articles a year that are connected to the uh, the, the, the various uh, consulting gigs that I have. Professor, thank you so much for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.